Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Greetings, this is William Jackson, and I would like to welcome our listeners to the Gist of Freedom. Um, I'm going to be your host tonight, and I'm looking forward to a great discussion once again about the Trayvon Martin trial and specifically about the trial instructions, the instructions from the judges, from the judge, and the information that was shared during the actual trial itself. Um, This evening, we are very honored to have a constitutional law professor, um, Ms. Gray, on tonight. And she is going to share some information with her experiences and information that she's going to share with us, her knowledge about constitutional law. Hello, Ms. Shanika. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Um, I'm William Jackson. I'm going to be your host this, this evening. And, again, I want to extend a uh, thank you for joining us and uh, sharing your expertise and your knowledge. I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, Just so we can catch up, could you provide some information uh, to us about your background? And I believe from my understanding we're talking to Leslie, you are are a constitutional law professor. Is that correct? Well, actually, I only teach constitutional criminal law, constitutional criminal procedure, not the other parts of the Constitution, but just those parts that deal with Criminal law, the Fourth Amendment, you know, search and seizure, Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination, things of that nature. I also um, teach trial advocacy and advanced trial advocacy, and I also teach evidence. So all of those courses pretty much come together um, in the in the trial context. But additionally, I um, have worked. Um, I'm a former assistant district attorney for the Cato DA's office in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I tried a number of different types of cases from second degree to legislation, lots of armed robberies, and I worked for the American Prosecutors Research Institute, um, which is the research arm of the National DA's Association in Washington, D.C., and I'm licensed to practice law in Louisiana and the District of Columbia. Wow, very impressive. Thank you for sharing that with us. Appreciate it. Well, Let's get started because I, I know a lot of people are interested in um, finding out some information, uh, your opinion about the trial, the trial process, because so much has changed since the actual trial has been over. There's a lot of people that are holding rallies and workshops right. and, you know, protests. But the, the important thing is that everyone receives the factual information about the whole legal process going through the Zimmerman trial, going, you know, the, the trial with Trayvon Martin and, and the actual events that happened. And what I wanted to do was um, have you elaborate on some questions that um, myself, Leslie, and a few people that, that I've talked to 
about that may be unclear to the general public and to our listening audience. And we're just going to jump right in it and, and start. Um, one of one of the things was the instructions that the jury receives from the judge and how that whole process works. Is there a set format? Is there a established policies and procedures? How is that process? Um, how is that process worked out with, between the judge and the jury? Okay, and can you hear me okay now? Oh yes, ma'am. Can you hear me fine? Okay, well, generally the procedure is that each state does have a set of pretty much canned jury instructions, for lack of a better word, and they generally pull from those set jury instructions, and they, prior to the end of the trial, usually somewhere towards the last witness, prior to closing arguments, there are a number of conferences with the judge where both parties sit down and they go over the jury instructions, and then the important part happens, and this is when both parties will make recommendations for what are called special jury instructions that may um, specifically apply to that particular case. And if those special instructions are not agreed upon, then they have a hearing, and that party has an opportunity to present to the judge what special instruction that they would like. They can, at that time, present any cases that may be in support of their position. The other side has an opportunity to argue present any cases in support of their position, and then at that point the judge will rule on that particular request for a special jury instruction. And that's what we had in this particular case. Actually, the the issue that um, I guess that is at the center of discussion at this point is the failure of the judge to include the special, well, it's it's not even a special instruction, but the instruction on the initial aggressor um, doctrine that is a part of criminal law in probably every state, including Florida. And as you know, that particular law basically provides that a person who brings on an altercation or who provokes the use of force against himself cannot claim self-defense with some specific exceptions. Now, let me say this first. Um, This was an issue that was raised at the hearing by the defense initially, um, and the defense raised the issue they indicated because they wanted to argue that particular point. And um, they were asking the court to exclude the instruction on the the first aggressor. And at that point, both of them were given an opportunity to make those arguments. So for those who do not know the full extent of what the initial aggressor doctrine provides, as I indicated, it does initially state it sets forth the basic rule that a person who brings on an altercation or who provokes the use of force against himself cannot claim self-defense. And provoking the use of force against yourself would include either you um, use physical violence against someone else or, or you pose a threat of violence against someone else that that person is now provoked to use force against you. If that happens, then you are precluded from being able to claim self-defense unless one of two exceptions apply. One of those exceptions is if the person that you initially provoked uses excessive force. The law specifically states that such force is so great that the person reasonably believes that he or she is in imminent danger of death and this person really has tried to exercise any options to leave. They they cannot because you lose your right to stand the ground under this doctrine. Right. So you do have to exercise options to try to avoid the situation and then but you have no other choice other than to use this, this, this amount of force to protect yourself. Okay, and now let me answer exception. 
Okay, go ahead. I wanted to ask the question. Um, now, now that part that you just described in the Sandra Brown law, is that a universal aspect of it, or is that just particular to Florida? Because I know Florida has, yes. uh, from my understanding, a particular section or part of the law that no other state has. There are parts of that Florida has that other states do not have, um, and, and, and I'm certainly going to get to some of those in a second. Now, most states, including Louisiana, has exceptions to the aggressor doctrine, you know, um, which is, you know, I'm, I'm part of Louisiana, and our exception specifically goes to the withdrawal, which is the second exception where that person can use force. Even though you started the altercation, you can use force against that person you, you started with. And um, but if you in good faith withdraw from the altercation and you do it in such a way that the victim knows that you intend to withdraw, but they continue against you anyway. So let me just say that in the context of this particular case. if, if the Based on the facts, if the jury had found that George Zimmerman had been the initial aggressor in this particular case, he would not have been able to use self-defense or claim self-defense in this case unless Trayvon Martin had used excessive force in defending himself from that initial aggression in such a way that at this point now George Zimmerman is no longer considered to be the aggressor. And now he may use reasonable force in order to protect himself from Trayvon. The other exception would be if, even if they found George to be the initial aggressor, then if he had withdrawn from the altercation in good faith in a way and, and communicated that to Trayvon to let him know that he no longer wanted to continue the altercation, but Trayvon continued um, in his pursuit, at that point, George Zimmerman is no longer considered the aggressor and he may use self-defense. So those are the two exceptions that even if there's an initial aggressor um, doctrine, but even when it applies, you can still use self-defense if that person uses excessive force against you or if you withdraw. Okay, because in, in Zimmerman's case, they didn't use the stand your, stand your ground law, but they used the self-defense aspect. Am, am I correct in that? No, in the Zimmerman case, they did use stand your ground. The, the stand your ground law was included in the jury instructions. Okay. But there's a reason you didn't hear about um, the Stand Your Ground law. You didn't hear them arguing about it. As we said, whenever the Stand, stand Your Ground, that particular language, what it really refers to is that in a situation in which a person can use some force to protect themselves, and you know the, the law in Florida, there are a number of different provisions that provide for when you can use force, whether it's a person right. trying to come into your home and so forth. But um, in this particular situation, it is when you are not inside of your home and you're not doing anything unlawful and so forth. But in any event, whenever you can use force to protect your, yourself against someone else, the Stand Your Ground statute just says that you can use that force, you can meet force with force, and stand your ground, you do not have to attempt to retreat prior to the use of that force. So let's just say, for instance, in this particular case, Let's just say that George Zimmerman was out in his front yard close to his front door and his garage door was open. And Trayvon somehow walked up and he started the fight with Trayvon and he was the aggressor. What we would have heard, what we would have heard in the trial was you didn't have to do that to Trayvon because you could have run in your house or you could have run in your garage. 
Right. In that situation, we're saying that you have a right to try to retreat prior to using the force. All that stand your ground means is that prior to the use of force, you do not have to attempt to retreat. You can stand your ground and meet force with force. So he would, even if it had happened in that scenario where he's in front of his house, the door is open, garage is open, he would not have had to try to run inside or get away or anything. He can stand his ground and meet force with a reasonable force. That's the only thing that the actual stand your ground meant. So okay. in that particular case that they just tried, the reason you didn't hear anything about the actual language stand your ground is because it was really irrelevant. That portion was irrelevant in this case because there was no allegation that George Zimmerman could have retreated prior to the use of force. So they, they didn't have to talk about that part. But it, but that law was included in there, and it was in the jury instruction, and it was applicable because it is a part now of their self-defense statute. So it was included. Okay. So so during the course of the trial when they, when they were describing the event that happened and Zimmerman was in his car and the gentleman on the phone from law enforcement told him that, that he did not have to pursue or go after or seek or or look for Trayvon, uh, once Zimmerman got out of his car to went to go look for Trayvon, couldn't that consider Zimmerman as the aggressor during the course of all the events that led up to him shooting Trayvon? Absolutely. Let me talk to you about how the court really came in to exclude it. You know, in okay. the hearing, the defense counsel, when he asked that it be excluded, he relied upon this case, um, Gibbs, and that's the 2001 case, the Florida Court of Appeals case. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but just generally speaking, in that case, the um, the defendant, who was a black female, she spoke to an elderly white couple on the porch. They didn't speak to her, so she asked them, why didn't you speak to me? The lady then said a derogatory term um, to something um, to the effect of, you know, get out of here, you um, thinking inward, you don't belong here. At that point, the defendant, the black female, made a racial slur back to her, and she mooned her. The, the white lady then came off the porch. They were involved in, a, in an altercation, and according to the defendant, the white lady swung at her. She said she stepped back and pushed her down, and that lady um, ended up dying. Well, in any event, in that particular case, which is what the defense relied upon, um, the defense, her attorney asked the judge for a special instruction that said he did not want the jury to be confused and to think that words alone can be enough to, to be um, to, to be provocation for the initial abuse. So he wanted the judge to clarify that when you're talking about provoking a, um, force against you, that it only applies to force, the use of force, or threat of force. And in that case, since the judge did not include it, it was reversed. In this particular case at the hearing, in George Zimmerman hearing, his attorney was arguing that to the judge, and he said, Your Honor, you know, that case was reversed because the judge erred when she gave the instruction on the initial aggressor doctrine. Now, I don't know if they recognized what the law was, but um, that was really not correct what the defense had stated to the judge because even though the court, even though that case was reversed, it was not reversed because the judge included the aggressive doctrine. The judge did include the aggressive doctrine, but the judge did not include language helping to explain the aggressive doctrine. So at this point, he told the judge, he said, Your Honor, 
you know, in order to include the aggressor doctrine, the, the state has to offer some evidence to prove that there was some um, provocation on the part of their client, Mr. Zimmerman. And mm-hmm. he, he asked the court to tell he he asked the court to basically require the state to say what evidence they had offered in order to right. prove that George Zimmerman actually was the aggressor. He did that. He offered the evidence that we all know, as you indicated, the chase and all that. The defense counsel at that point explained to the judge that the information that he's told you, Your Honor, cannot be corroborated or is not credible because that's coming from Rachel Gentile and all these types of things. And based on that, the judge says, well, I'm going to exclude it. But that was not correct because the judge, in saying I'm going to exclude it, what the judge basically did was she made a finding of fact and she made a determination as to what basically would have been believed or not believed. And that is a that is what the jury is supposed to do because even if a witness is not credible, as they say, Rachel Gentile was not credible, the jury might have believed her. They may have believed right, everything exactly. that she said. And so the defense basically argued to the judge that since it's not proven unequivocally, so to speak, that he was an aggressor, then it should be excluded. And that's why the, the judge really should not have done that because it wasn't for the judge to decide the fact. It was for the jury to decide the fact. But the judge well, excluded did, not, at that not point. Not to cut you off. Not to cut you no, off, but um, when when that happened, isn't there a process where somebody recognizes that or can bring bring that to light or ask for further clarification? Because once that was done, it was done. I don't believe there was there was any further action with that, was there? You're absolutely correct. I mean, really and truly, if you look at the trans, if you look at the videos where they're arguing it, it almost seemed to me as though the state was caught off guard by the fact that he even had to argue it at that time, it, because really the aggressor doctrine in a situation like that would be almost automatic, you know, that it that it was coming in. So I don't think he really was probably even prepared to really explain or to had even probably recently read the case of Gibbs to understand how the the case was distinguished. But if he had, it was his job at that point to really argue to the court how that case did not support what the defense was saying and that it was appropriate and proper at that point to include it and to really try to fight for that. And that's something that did not happen. And um, as a result of that, you had that um, evidence, I mean, that jury instruction was excluded when it should have been included. Okay. And it really, I, I call that one of the most, I call it the pivotal moment in the case. And and the reason why I think it was so important is because one of the things that the, that the prosecution, especially in rebuttal, kept bringing out is that the defense wanted to start this whole scenario from what they call the T, that portion in the subdivision where they claimed Trayvon approached George Zimmerman. Right. He made it clear that this started prior to that. This started when they were in the car. But see, when the judge says that that chase and that information was pretty much, you know, when they were not even really considering whether he was the aggressor, it had no legal significance. That chase and all that really had no legal significance in the case because it wasn't considered part of aggression. It wasn't considered as something unlawful because we know Stanley Brown requires that you're not involved in any any unlawful um, activity at the time. So it had no legal significance, so they pretty much ignored it. 
you know, as opposed to, um, you know, if it had been in there, then both the prosecution and the defense would have really been required to argue those facts on that particular point a lot more closely, and the defendant would have been able to tell that story from Trayvon's perspective because that is something that was missing. You know, if right. you ask anybody right now, you know, what was the defendant's story as to what happened, everybody can tell you. Nobody can tell you what was the state's version of events as to, you know, what they said happened. Now, we know that their main witness is deceased, but if the, if the state does not have a scenario that will support a conviction, then you're not supposed to bring the case. So you have to have some sort of scenario that you say happened that would that if the jury can believe means that you should find this person guilty. And I think yes, part of that scenario would have come into play had they been able to really bring this, this, this scenario all the way back to when he's in the car and how everything that happened after that was a part of that aggression that provoked the altercation. But also right. I want to make up one other point on this that's very, very important. In, a, when, in, in Florida, and this is one of the major problems with the Stand Your Ground statute, in Florida when a person claims self-defense, you know that the burden shifts to the state to prove that he did not act in self-defense. If the state were to get up after calling one witness or no witnesses, you know, and you would have to ask him, has he, you know, has the self-defense claim been proven? It would be yes, because he basically already has that presumption that he did act in self-defense unless the state proves that he didn't. But if you, ha if you bring in that if he had won on the initial aggressor, he wouldn't have had that anymore. It would have been you cannot claim self-defense, and it would have forced the defendant to prove one of those exceptions, which would have made it much more difficult for him to prevail in the case. Right. Because one, one of the things that concerned me also was, look, even before the trial, there were so many inconsistencies in Zimmerman's description of actually what happened. And right. that was brought up a couple of times, but it's, but it, to me, it wasn't brought up in such a way that, you know, here you have Zimmerman, he's describing what happened, his opinion, his ideas, you know, but he changed it a couple of times, but it really wasn't brought to light the importance of how his description of the events changed. And, you know, something like that, wouldn't that influence the judge and wouldn't that influence the jury as well? It would have. I mean, um, during the trial, I kept saying, during the closing arguments from the prosecution, I thought it was it was a bit confusing and that um, it was not organized well in order to really do just what you're saying, to really show the inconsistencies and, most importantly, to really lay out to the jury what had to be proven and how it had actually been proven in the case. And, and even when there's some conflicting or contradictory, contradictory evidence, to show why you should still believe this particular version because of perhaps some lie that George Zimmerman told or what have you. So I agree that I didn't think that that there was a really good job done during closing arguments of really pointing out the inconsistencies and really demonstrating to the jury that the elements of the crime had been met. Okay. It could have been done in a much, much better way. That's better, right? Right. Because it's interesting that as you know, people were going, you know, going back through what was said, what wasn't said, um, and Rachel, when she was given her description, this, this, the, 
the way that she was treated, and and she did carry herself, in my opinion, as a young lady, under so much pressure and her description of events that were going on, it it seemed in a, that in their way they were trying to discredit her as a person, her description of events that were going on, and actually the factual event that happened as she was talking to Trayvon on the phone. So they were trying to, in my opinion, trying to discount everything that she was saying so that proving to the jury that she was unreliable. Right. And that's so that's exactly what they did, and it worked, you know, mm-hmm. um, based on what, um, at least, you know, one juror who has come forward has said that they did not find her credible. I didn't also, I felt that, you know, you're absolutely correct that they were trying to discredit her. They were showing inconsistencies. They were showing some prior lies that she had told. But one of the things that, you know, I felt that the that the state really needed to do, particularly in closing arguments, was to demonstrate that even with the credibility issues that she had, her story was still corroborated by the evidence. Right. Because she basically said that Trayvon ran. He he was afraid he ran from this guy. Well, we know that that's true, you know, because we know George Zimmerman said that himself when he was on the phone with the 911 non-emergency operator. He said, now he's running. We know that he got out of the car. That's what she said, that, you know, Trayvon said he's chasing me. That's the same thing George Zimmerman said, that he was following him, even though he tried to put it in different ways. His mm-hmm. statement should have been the one that was not credible on that issue because he went from saying, well, I didn't follow him, I walked where he had walked, or I didn't, you know, he wasn't really running, he was skipping really fast, you know, all of those things. But basically he he acknowledged, I mean, they conceded at that point at the trial that he was following him, and we also know that even after he was told to stop, we know that he did not stop because he said that he continued looking for an address. And so even if um, Trayvon, even if he was really looking for an address, Trayvon certainly wouldn't have had any way of knowing that he was looking for an address when he saw him get out of the car and run initially. He would have still been justified in believing that this person posed a threat of force against him and as a result of that to use force to defend himself. But, of course, you know, that law was excluded. And, you know, we have to remember these jurors, they're lay people, so... This is not a law that they would know themselves if if no one has told them that that's the way that will work. They just didn't know that that's how, you know, they should have looked at that. But I I feel like overall Rachel's testimony was corroborated by the evidence. Uh So do you think in in the minds of the jury, um, even before they had to, and and is the appropriate um, term deliberate, um, the process where they, okay, even during that, even before they got to that process, do you think that in some way they already had in their mind how they were going to, um, how they were going to rule and um, and and let them know that that Zimmerman was not guilty? I think that based on what has since come out, you know, uh, there are some individuals who believe that at least one juror who will we are aware of, I believe. She's been referred to as B-37, certainly appeared to have wanted to be on the jury and may have had some sort of private or secret agenda in order to ensure that she got on the jury for whatever reason. And Mm -hmm. some of her statements 
um, do suggest that, you know, she was very sympathetic for him and that, you know, she feels sorry for him and all of this. So it really looks as though her mind was made up and probably there's probably nothing that she could have said or the, the that the prosecution could have said to change her mind. And so with that, um, you know, she may be, you know, one and maybe one or two more, but from what I have read, there were a couple of jurors who did, you know, want to convict, and um, at least three of them wanted to convict on something, and one was holding out even longer than that wanted to convict on right. something. So, you know, maybe one or two knew how they felt before they came in, but it seemed like many of them had an open mind and they were willing to yeah. truly decide the case based on the facts. Right. So her, so her, her judgment in her mind. What? How could she influence them um, to side with her um, in, in the ruling that they presented? Because it, it basically. Because it, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's just like, you know, regular people in there. You know, you're just talking just as if, you know, you and a group of friends were, were talking and you wanted to convince them of a particular argument, you know. And um, so if you're, when you're in there and she's, you know, she basically looked at the law and, and told them that this is the moment we have to focus on. They focused on that one moment, and that's what she said during the fight. Did he believe, was he in belief? that his life was in danger or that there was some danger of serious bodily injury that he needed to prevent. And that's all they focused on at the end of the day, what he was feeling at that time. They put themselves in his shoes and what he probably felt, but they never backed it up to what Trayvon probably felt, you know, in believing that there was this threat of violence to him and that he probably was just trying to defend himself. And and I also thought that even though he may have, you know, for them to say that they focused on that point, it still doesn't seem to me that it should have been reasonable for um, based on the evidence that was that was presented with, when you talk about the forensic evidence, you know, the lack of the DNA, you know, what the experts testified um, to in terms of the number of and extent of the injuries. It just doesn't seem like it would be reasonable for him to have believed that his life was in danger or there was some threat of serious bodily injury to him at that time. And I I don't know if I really heard those arguments sufficiently from the the prosecution when they were making it to really help the jury hone in on what the issues really were in the case. Right. Right. And and as you were talking about, um that there there are a lot of media reports now about the treatment of the jurors and and if you have um right. if you could focus on that because I was reading um actually this morning about how the some of the jurors or or the jurors were treated to um the state centers and um wow. they took a field trip to a museum and well, all of this that point with taxpayer dollars, but you know, mm-hmm. is that is that legal to allow them to do that? And then visits from their um their family as well. Exactly, and that's the main problem right there. Um, you know, the visits and the um, contact with the outside sources. And we know that we have at least one juror whose husband is a lawyer, and that's the same one who came out this B-37, but there's another juror whose son is a lawyer. And we wow. know that these people were, um, that their family members were at least, you know, probably watching the case on television, 
um, mm-hmm. clearly watching the news, watching the media, watching the social media, and right. unsupervised those meetings. You know, when you think about the fact that this particular juror had, you know, a, a contract, you know, for a book deal the next day, this is something that was being brokered, you know, during the trial, probably, you know, by her husband, but through contact with her. So um, it is clear that there was some misconduct on the part of the jury, you know, but at the end of the day, when you're talking about an acquittal, you really have no real remedy because, you know, I think one of the main questions that people are posing now is when you have a situation like this where you have this what appears to be an erroneous ruling by the court, especially when you couple that with this jury misconduct of having, you know, contact with um, outside sources, um, supervised as to the content of their conversation, and um, motives that we don't know what their motives are based on wanting to write this book and so forth. Um, Basically, there's really nothing that that can be done. The U.S. Supreme Court has been pretty clear that, you know, that double jeopardy would be involved when you're talking about trying a person after an acquittal. The court has even gone on to um, talk about that even if there's plain error by in law by the court, jury or witness tampering or misconduct, when we have an acquittal, then it would just put the defendant, it would be so unfairly prejudicial to him because it's going to be so burdensome to him in terms of the mental stress, the time, a financial burden, until you're effectively wearing him out and it puts the state in a, in a position to be able to really win because they've had a full dress rehearsal and right. to do it all over again. So when mm-hmm. you're talking about a person who's been acquitted, when you come back to that same state court, it's just not going to happen. The defense, the, the prosecution can't even raise those issues on appeal, and they are not going to be able to, to, to retry him on those charges. Right. Now, now with all of this coming to light, and the request of the federal government to come in and see if Trayvon Martin's um, constitutional rights, civil rights, were violated. The information that has been accumulated now, can that also be used to further investigate if his constitutional rights have been violated and charges brought against Zimmerman in that fashion? Right. If there are federal charges that are brought in this case, first of all, Federal charge, um, having a state prosecution, I'm sorry, a federal prosecution at this point would not violate double jeopardy. That would not be an issue. It's called a dual sovereignty rule. And as long as there are two different sovereignties, then that does not violate the double jeopardy clause. So that will not be an issue. And what, if anything, if the federal government were to bring um, an action against George Zimmerman, it would have to be under the Federal Hate Crimes Prevention Act, and that's what okay. people are referring to when they talk, they're talking about these federal charges that uh-huh. um, they could possibly brought against him. And basically, the when you talk about charges under the Hate Crimes Act, people need to understand what the Hate Crimes Act is. Um, the Hate Crimes Act is designed to um, to prosecute individuals who have um, been involved in violence against people because of a bias that they have against a group of people. And they okay. commit the violent act because of that violence. Now, do you recall um, the case of James Byrd in, um, in Texas where he was drugged behind a truck 
um, yes. it was an African-American man drug behind a truck. Well, the Federal Hate Crimes Act was expanded in 2009. It was named after him, James Byrd, and Matthew Shepard. And at the time of those particular incidents, there was, um, you know, we did not have the, the law was not expanded to the way that it is now, and there was no Federal Hate Crimes Act to bring them under. But those were the types of acts that they envisioned, and that's why they named them, because those particular incidents prompted them to expand the Federal Hate Crimes Act in 2009. But in that particular case, dealing with James Byrd, when they drug him behind that truck, the three gentlemen, two of them were white supremacists. One of them also had, um, you know, they had tattoos, racist tattoos, a black yeah. man hanging from, you know, his um, from, a, from a tree, Nazi symbols. And so that, it was that evidence that, that they were able to use to prove that those men actually had some bias or hatred for that particular group, which were African Americans in that context. And then there was some violence because, specifically because of that violence and as, an, as a, a demonstration of the, the um, hatred that they had for that particular group. That's what you're looking for in this particular type of case. And in the Matthew Shepard case, you know, that involved a guy who was gay, and that one was believed to have been violence against him because he was gay. And that expansion in 2009 started to include people who, you know, when there's hatred because of sexual orientation, in right, the yeah. race, gender, nationality, and so forth. So anyway, um, I wanted to bring that out for, for two reasons. Number one, to show the type of evidence that needs to be present when we're talking about the, the bias against that group or the hatred against that group. You know, we, we were talking historically about, like, members of the KKK and skinheads. It's proven that they, or there's evidence that they have a bias against the group and their actions were intended right. to be sort of, you know, an exercise of that. That's what's missing in this particular case, and mm -hmm. that is the problem that the, that, the, that the federal government will have in bringing a charge because in order to bring this charge against um, George Zimmerman under this Federal Hate Crimes Act, they would really have to prove that he had some hatred, some bias against African Americans, and that he did that pretty much just because of that hatred for African Americans. Even in the James Byrd case where the guy was drugged, the two who were members of white supremacists, both of them got the death penalty. But the other guy, who was not actually a member, he only got a life sentence because they said, but well, they couldn't really prove it was because of his hatred for black people, even though, I mean, I think your association with two white supremacists and you all right. involved in this activity kind of shows that, but it wasn't sufficient. Um, but, you know, that is something that's missing, and it's believed now, and it was kind of thought that throughout the course of the trial, more evidence would come out to support the fact that George Zimmerman you know, participated in this activity because he hated African Americans. But as you know, that never came out once in the trial. Right. You know, they probably never hardly even mentioned that the state their theory was wrapped around the fact that that he was he just hated, you know, criminals or people he criminals. were criminals and he profiled right. criminals, but not, you know, because he didn't like black people. I mean they talked about the fact that he had lots of black friends and he had started a business with a black guy at some point in the past. But there's really no evidence to show that he has this deep hatred or bias against black people and that he did that only because of that hatred. So that's going to be a major, major problem that the federal government will have, particularly since there's already been a state acquittal. 
because, you know, the, the federal government has specific rules that they have to follow right, exactly. when they are going to try to bring a case after a state acquittal. And one of them is they have to they, there has to be a federal interest at stake that was not adequately adjudicated, um, I don't know the exact language, in that state court. If there had been a hate crime, I think that would have been the case because there is a state interest in preventing hate crimes, and the federal government would have an interest in trying to make sure that that person is held accountable for it. But you might be missing that. The federal government also has to believe that there's really sufficient evidence of it doesn't look like, you know, that there is a lot of evidence to prove the actual bias against the group. So to answer your question, nothing prevents them from doing it legally under the Constitution. They can bring, um, you know, this an action in the federal court. But based on what they would have to prove, it is highly mm-hmm. unlikely that at the end of the day they're going to do it because it's just going to result in another acquittal and it's right. basically a lot of false hope. Right. So during the so with the juror interview and the results that have happened, especially with um, what has been brought to light from juror B thirty seven, what recommendations um, or ideas do you think need to be changed in the stand your ground law and also in relation to self defense with with all this information coming out now? Well, and and let me just say, and I and I'll tell you that because I think that there are some issues involved, but just with the um, just with respect to the first part of your question about jury questioning and so forth on misconduct, those laws are really put in place for the defendant, you know, if he's found guilty and for him to have those opportunities to have it, you know, to try to have an opportunity to get a new trial, basically. Um, and that's really for his benefit. Now, there are a lot of problems when you, when you talk about the stand your ground, and I think this is really important. It's an important narrative for us to have because we know that there has been a major um, injustice here, and we know that something, a benefit, needs to come out of this in some way. And one of the ways in which there needs to be a benefit is to do something about the stand your ground laws that are in place in states all over the country, which, you know, are almost 30 states um, across the country have stand-your-ground laws. The different states have different provisions. All of the states don't have all of the provisions. Um, Florida has pretty much everything that, you know, the proponents were trying to get. When they came to Louisiana in 2005, we cut out a lot of those provisions that they have. But this is what makes a couple of um, reasons why the stand-your-ground statute is, is not a good thing. For two main reasons. There are provisions in it that make it subject to discriminatory application, and okay. secondly, it's unfairly slanted towards the defendant. And let me tell right. you, let me give you an example. Um, the stand your ground law, and this is one of the most important parts of the stand your ground law that people don't realize. It's not even the part that they don't have to retreat, which is important, but that's not the most important part of the biggest problem. One of the biggest okay. problems is the immunity provision that the stand your ground has. A person who who um, who has used self-defense under the stand your ground law, they are immune from criminal prosecution as well as from a civil action. Okay, so oh. that is automatically gonna kind of push out the Martin family when it comes to trying to bring a civil action. But as far as the criminal prosecution, and I have the law sitting here in front of me, but mm-hmm. it says that 
as used in this subsection, the term criminal prosecution includes arresting, detaining in custody, charging, or even prosecuting the defendant. This is part of the reason why George Zimmerman was not initially arrested. It's because okay. of the immunity provision in the statute. Let me read to you the next part of it that it says. It says that a law enforcement agency may use standard procedures for investigating the use of force as described in subsection 1, but the agency may not arrest the, defense, the person for using force unless it determines that there is probable cause that the force that was used was unlawful. That means that when a person is killed, and the police officer goes to the scene, and that person says, well, I used, um, you know, I, I stood my ground, I killed him, right. he posed a threat of violence to me. The police officers can't arrest him unless the police officers investigate the crime and determine, have probable cause that it was really not in self-defense. So he, but he waived that. Didn't, didn't he waive that? Though? Well, no. He, well, no. Well, technically, yes, he did. But okay. it, just in general, that would be an issue because with him at that time, of course, he had not because the issue had not really been raised yet. Okay. But as far as the prosecution aspect of it, later on, he did waive the actual hearing. He didn't waive the oh. He just waived the hearing that would have given him the criminal, you know, the immunity from prosecution. And oh, okay. Waive. He also did not waive the civil immunity either. In fact, they specifically said that we are reserving our right to any immunity under the civil proceedings, and that if anyone, i.e., the Martin family, you know, attempts to sue them, they are going to ask for the civil immunity hearing, and the judge at that time will decide if they would be immune from prosecution. But that's something that has not happened yet. Right. So he was trying to cover all bases. Right. They're trying to cover all bases. But um, but just generally speaking, that is a a part of the statute that people are entitled to that makes that stand your ground statute, you know, so slanted in favor of the defense. And that's probably one of the provisions that need to be changed because you're basically tying the police officer's hands up, saying that you can't you can't arrest them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's a major problem, you know, with that statute. And another major problem with the statute is when you make it to the trial and, and you know, the prosecution has the burden of proving that the defendant did not act in self-defense there, you know, and giving and having, rather than having a defendant who claims self-defense have to prove it himself. Because if you think about it, it gives the defendant an unfair advantage because he's killed the, the prosecution's main witness who would help to prove that, you know, that it was not in self-defense, but then the, but the prosecution has to prove it. And okay. some have been argued that it gives the defendant an incentive to kill the victim so that there won't be anyone to refute, you know, the fact that um that he that he killed him in self defense. There there are some statistics out there on this and um that I recently read this week. I can email them to you all, um, if you'd like after the show. Oh, but yes, that it says that under states with your ground laws a white person who kills a black person under stand your ground law is 354% more likely to get off under stand your ground than if a white person kills another white person. Mm-hmm. So this is telling you right now that when they're invoking stand your ground, it's being applied in a discriminatory manner. When people are saying that when they're killing a black person, basically 
at one of those points, whether it's during the investigation, the immunity hearing, or at the trial, it is believed that that black person posed that serious threat and that the force used was reasonable and it's resulting in discriminatory application of that, that law. So that can be used as justification to go in and change the law and modify the right. law because I, I I don't think it's going to be totally done away with, but we all right. know that there needs to be modifications and changes done to the law to make it more fair. Exactly, and that's pretty much the best that can really be done because, as you said, I don't think it's going to be completely done away with it, but if they remove that immunity provision, if they remove these restraints on police officers from having to find probable cause that it was not committed in self-defense, if they remove this burden of proof on, from the state for having to prove it was not in self-defense, ultimately we can reach goals of, you know, preventing unnecessary death and, you know, hold people accountable for the crimes that they're committing. And I, I truly believe and I truly hope that, you know, Trayvon, you know, that his that his death will not be in vain and, and he right. will one life that can possibly save the lives of many, many people who will come after him where someone will not be able to sh or be have the incentive to exercise deadly force so quickly under the assumption that, well, I'm, I know I'm going to get off because that's kind of what the, the idea that, that people are thinking that, you know, they're proceeding under that presumption that it's very likely that they're going to get off. And based on the statistics, that is exactly, you know, that's what's happening when you have a white person killing killing an African-American. It, it's um, disproportionate with being applied in a discriminatory manner. So, so now with all the discussion that, that we've had in, in this hour, um, what suggestions um, could you give to parents on how they could talk to their children, um, particularly um, black boys and black girls, how could their parents talk to them and take in the information that we just talked about to further educate them, um, to make sure that, that they understand the ramifications of their actions. Um, if they feel threatened in any way, how could parents talk to their children to, um, to enlighten them on what they need to do or information that they need to have? Well, one thing I would say for sure, I think, you know, that that the kids probably recognize what's going on, you know, in these types of cases. They see what's happening, particularly in this case with Trayvon Martin. And um, I think that's good that, that, the, that the young people are seeing it and they recognize that at some point, you know, they could possibly be a victim. And it's so okay. unfortunate when you have people like the defense, you know, counsel who wanted to put the, the burden basically on Trayvon to say that, well, you have four minutes to run home, um, you know, and to have him be required to run from someone in order to keep from getting shot and killed. Clearly, that shouldn't be the case. But if it will save your life in some instance, then it's best that you recognize that, you know what, there's someone over there who may not value my life, and that same person may be able to commit this crime and not have to be held accountable, you know, when you weigh the options, sometimes it might be in that person's best interest to understand that, you know, they they would want to avoid that situation, you know, at all costs. And hopefully when people see that these that folks are being held accountable, then that will discourage anyone from um, using 
um, from being from basically exercising these rights to try to stand your ground and use this excessive force in various situations. You know, they're going to know that I'm going to be held account- accountable. I'm going to jail, and hopefully that will discourage that. But I do okay. think there's an emotional component here that parents and the kids are seeing that will certainly make them more aware and more vigilant in trying to avoid these situations. Right. Well, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Another thing um, that comes to mind is possible lawsuits. And um, with the, um, with the juror B-37, having such a, having a book deal so early, um, it makes a lot of people wonder, well, just how far in advance were these arrangements made and if there were options given to this particular juror about, well, if the case went a certain way, that would increase that would increase the possibility of book sales and some monetary exchanges. So can there be a lawsuit um, against her with all this knowledge coming out about now she has a book deal and potentially she could make millions of dollars off of it? You know, that's interesting. Um, That's a very, very interesting point because, you know, that might be a possibility, you know, that, um, that that would be a viable option. I really had never even thought about it, so I really hadn't thought it through. But um, I would think, and, and I think most of us know at this point that even though that particular book deal was pulled before right. this is over, all of those jurors might have book deals as well as everybody else, the judge and everyone else might have mm-hmm. book deals. But if but if but if the um, facts were to come out that this person basically you know sabotaged the trial and so forth, there is a possibility that. There could be a valid lawsuit against her because of the harm that she would have, you know, potentially caused to whoever, you know, um, in particular in the Martin family, right. based on her, you know, intentional, egregious acts of going out there, or even if called negligent acts, and she didn't realize she would cause this type of harm. There is a possibility, but like I said, I hadn't really thought it out like that. But that is. Something that might be a viable, you know, a viable alternative, particularly if, um, and, and it's very likely that they will not be able to bring a civil suit against, you know, George Zimmerman. Um, right. You know, those are interesting alternatives. Right. Because consider. if you can meet with your family for a couple of hours, and, and I wasn't aware that George could do. My my thought process was that if you're in a jury and you have to, uh, and when you come to deliberation, you're isolated from your family, you're isolated from social media, you're isolated from television. But in this case, they had the opportunity um, several hours to talk to their families. Um, They had opportunities to get information um, from television and social media. So in, in my mind, this may, you know, if not all the jurors, this particular juror skewed her, um, ideas or gave her additional ideas. Well, I can benefit off benefit off of this um, if we um, if, if we go a certain way with this. Right, exactly. Those motives, you know. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I think, and to be quite honest, um, she might even be subjecting themselves, um, she and her husband, you know, to criminal charges for maybe juror tampering or something, you know, um, depending on what they did. And I think that that's the reason, another reason why I believe people are wanting, you know, to at least have that inquiry, you know, with the jurors to really find out what happened regardless to whether there would be a potential, you know, um, possibility of 
of a of a new trial, the full right. story needs to come out about what happened and the extent of that it happened. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they themselves showed up with lawyers because of you know the the, the allegations and because you know the, what people are thinking is broad. You know, in terms right. of what possibly could have happened and what they could have possibly done and how long it, it has been going on. We really have no way of knowing because, you know, if you listen to, and, and, and many experts have stated that, you know, if you really listen to the voir dire, and I listened to a piece of the voir dire when they were questioning her. I didn't listen to it at all. But if you listen to it, you can hear her really trying to convince them that she would make a good juror. It's not going to disrupt right. my life. They want to know, can you be away this many weeks? Oh, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't know anything about it. I don't read the paper. She says she only uses the paper to line her bird cages. You know, I don't know anything about the trial. And all of this seemed to be in an effort to show that, you know, I can be fair. I can be impartial because I don't know what's going on. I haven't made up my mind about this case. So it, okay. this could have been something that really did start before she was ever even put on the right. thing, you know, with her husband telling her, these are the things that you need to make sure you say and don't say in order to make sure you get on the jury, you know. And but I'm surprised it wasn't taken into account. You know, I'm surprised it wasn't take, it taken into account and that she and that she wasn't chosen um, because her husband is an attorney. Many and to people me, would not have selected her. Right, that would have been a red flag her. right there. Right, um, even though it wouldn't have been something that they, it would have been a challenge for cause unless she had said, no, I'm going to just go with what my husband says. I'm not going to listen to you all. But, you know, aside from something like that, you know, many many people would not want her on the jury because I, in my mind, if you're married to a lawyer and this happened in February of 2012, how can you say that in over a year you all never really talked about this case and you're right there in Florida, your husband's a lawyer, you never talked about the case? Right. It just does, it doesn't seem genuine to me. So I would have personally felt that there was a very good opportunity that this lady has talked about the case, and whatever her husband thinks and whatever her husband told her is what she's going to stick with and believe. And with me not knowing what he said, I don't, I don't want her on the jury, you know. No. And I wouldn't have had her, I wouldn't have had her on the jury because clearly his opinions would have been, you know, more important than than mine. But we don't know in in a, in a given situation if that person's views are skewed towards the state or if it's skewed towards the defense. We never know when they get there, but all I know is that it's probably one way or the other, and I want someone who's willing to listen to the evidence and who's listening to the facts of the case to make their decision. Right. And I want to, again, thank you for all the information that you're sharing. It's very valuable and very enlightening, and I'm learning a great deal, and I know our listeners are learning a great deal about the whole process. Um, The last question I have... Yes, ma'am. No, I was just saying I hope that I have provided some helpful information. Oh, yes, you definitely you have. Um, the last question I have, because we are running out of time, and, and we do appreciate and respect your time and taking the opportunity to talk to us, is about what accountability uh, for the lobbyists that force stand your ground law um, here in Florida, are, are they accountable or can they be held accountable in any way? Um from this trial and any events that that led up to it. Well, that's interesting. I seriously doubt it because of their particular act. You know, whenever you're talking about, particularly in a negligence situation, you know, 
whether their, you know, particular act is actually the cause of whatever the resulting harm is. And so you're gonna it's just gonna be a little bit too attenuated because you've got all of these intervening um forces that happen there. You know, um if you're talking about say for instance, you know, if family wanted to do it because you all let's say for instance the NRA who was a major proponent of stand your ground laws um, okay. if a person wanted to sue them to say, well, because you all pushed this thing so hard in the legislature, you are ultimately responsible for George Zimmerman using it and, and subsequently killing. Whenever you're talking about those type of situations, you really have to, there are so many intervening factors with, you know, the, the legislature passing it, and then you got this guy who actually commits, you know, this act that, you know, could or could not have been construed as criminal act. And all of that is there to kind of, you know, break any chain between their conduct and the resulting right. harm. So they would not likely be be um, able to be held liable because it's, it's just too attenuated from the from the resulting harm. Okay. Well, once again, I want to say I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this evening. And even though it's usually an, an hour, you know, the extension of time, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, to elaborate on a lot of information and share your experiences, and I want you to have well, a great yeah, week. Thank you so uh, much. You know. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm glad oh, you all are doing a great service, and I appreciate you for having me, and I do think that you're doing a great service because people really do want to get some elaboration on these issues, and it's wonderful that you all are providing that forum to give that to them. Now, I understand you do have a blog site, is that correct? Yes, yes, um, www.thelegalroundtableshow.com. And so it would be great if anyone would um, access the website and also follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you know, at S-L-G-R-E-Y S-L-G-R-E-Y at, um, on Facebook and Twitter, and that would be wonderful. Okay, we'll make sure we put that on our, our Facebook and blog sites as well. Thank you very much. You are quite welcome. And thank you once again, and have a blessed evening. You have a great evening as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.